We've all heard the statistic that 50% of all marriages end in divorce. But do they have to? What if all those people could rediscover what made their relationship special to start with? Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie. My guest today is Lane Stokes. Lane has been a practicing marriage counselor for nearly four decades. After seeing person-centered psychotherapy fail to respond and resolve issues fast enough, he elected to build an alternative that hones in on the processes that made people fall in love on a chemical level. Understanding that showed him how to help people fall back in love even after the chemicals that brought them together were long gone. Today, he shares some of that to help listeners reconnect with their loved ones and strengthen their bonds. Lane's phone vibrates a couple times through this interview that I couldn't cut out. It's pretty close to the mic, but don't be too surprised and look at your own phone like I did while editing this. So I guess I need to include a phone on silent in my pre-recording checklist for guests. In case you missed it the last week or so, I'm still inviting any listeners who really know or care about something a lot to come on the show and share it with the rest of us. Just send me an email dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com, or reach out on any of the social pages. But now, let's fall back in love. Welcome to the show, Lane Stokes. Good to be here. Thank you so much for being on the show. Why don't you introduce yourself for the audience? Well, my name is Lane Stokes. I'm a licensed professional counselor. I've been in private practice now for 34 years, specifically marriage counseling. But um, my first training was in working with the seriously mentally ill. So I've had lots of experience with working with schizophrenia and bipolar and depression and anxiety and just practically all of the mental illnesses that you find in the DSM, you're familiar with the book. It's the book of psychiatry where all of the diagnoses are found for all of the mental illnesses. Um, but then I got interested in marriage counseling and that kind of took over my life. It's just more fascinating. I like complexity. The borderline were very complex, and I did a lot of work with them earlier on, but um, you need a clinic when you work with the borderline. You need other doctors around sometimes to help you, and I don't have that in private practice. So marriage counseling became a a big part, and one of the reasons is uh, I used to take insurance and when the insurance company stopped paying me for my services, I had to do something. I had to go into self-pay. And I knew that nobody would want to pay me $190 or whatever to listen to their anxiety or their depression. So I, I got into marriage counseling because I thought people would be willing to pay more for a good marriage counseling. Yeah, that certainly stands to reason. I mean, people want to fix their relationship and they're you know they're willing to put money out for that yeah so why like what is it about you know love between this couple that really like drew you in and and got you to spend so much time 
you know, just working on the process? Well, the process is a good word because over time you learn bits and pieces and then you start putting the bits and pieces together. I, I started out doing person-centered counseling like most other people. Uh, it's easier. You simply sit and listen to the other person or person's talk. And it's kind of up to them to figure out what to talk about and to uh, decide on some course of action. But it takes too long. And counseling can be very expensive, um, good counseling. And I just had this, this thing that I wanted to make marriage counseling as quick as possible help people get over the pain more quickly and thus it would be less expensive, less sessions. And here in Atlanta, we've had such traffic problems uh, that back when I worked in an office, it would take people maybe an hour, an hour and a half to get to me because of traffic. And then another hour, an hour and a half to get home. And I, I just hated to see people have to go through with that for so long. So um, I came up with different methods. Uh, one of the first methods I called uh, divorce prevention. And I had to come up with it because uh, by, by 2018, the field was changing. I had a, the first couple who had ever come to me told me they were leaving me and going to the counselor because I was not fast enough for them. And that shocked me. I never had anybody do that before. And so I called some of my colleagues and found they were they were hearing the same thing. Um, they were not fast enough. And so the person would come to you for a session or two and then leave you and go to somebody else and maybe another counselor too and then get a divorce. And I didn't want another couple to leave me. That just wasn't the way I saw myself. So um, I sat down and looked at the situation and came up with a new idea. And so when the next couple came in the first time, I asked them a lot of questions, got a lot of information, found out what their the top 15 issues were that were concerning them, started working on one of them in that first session, actually gave them a way to show appreciation to each other every day. And so when they left, they thought that they were being helped. They found somebody who was immediately beginning to help them with the, the real issues. And so within the first two sessions, I knew what up to 30, if they had 30, up to 30 of the biggest issues were, drew up a schedule for how to start with the most critical and work my way through to the end, uh, working on six issues at a time instead of one. Now, when you do person-centered, you actually work on one issue at a time. And it can take years to, to resolve 30. I didn't want to take years. I wanted 
faster. And so we would work on six issues at a time. And the first couple that I worked through, it took seven months to resolve all 30. And that was just unbelievable in our profession uh, to do that fast work. But for me, it wasn't fast enough. I wanted something faster. So I guess within a year, I had a dream, very, uh, very vivid dream. And a voice out of nowhere asked me, uh, well, you know how many issues there are. How many calls are there? Well, I woke up and I didn't have a clue what that meant. And so I went back and looked at my notes from the past of other clients. And I found, I began to find what I thought were causes. And I figured that there were eight of them. I don't know where, where do you get a number like that, but just looking at the causes that I found, there were eight. And then I thought, okay, I'll change my counseling from working with issues to working with causes. And if I can work through eight causes faster than 30 issues, then I'll realize more of my, my dream to make it faster. And so I was in the process of changing over when I realized that and this is going to be a little complicated, so I hang on to your seatbelt. Um, I realized that the eight causes were the same as the eight feelings that people have when they fall in love. Now, scientists have figured out that falling in love is not just two people going gaga over each other, it's actual mating chemicals such as sex hormones, testosterone, estrogen, adrenaline, oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin, those well-known chemicals, uh, each of them having a separate uh, way of making it fall in love. And so they figured that, that Mother Nature had created this process, took about six months, and during that time, people would be just crazy in love with each other. I want to have sex all the time. And Mother Nature's reason for it was to have them uh, copulate, have offspring to replenish the Earth's population. Mother Nature didn't care about marriage or morality or anything. She just wanted to turn two people on so bad that all, all they wanted to do was have sex. And so falling in love is basically that for people that can do it. Now, for some religious people, they will not have sex before marriage, and so that kind of frustrates Mother Nature. But um, for a large number of the population, the morality is not that much of an issue, and so people just have sex day and night. And have a child, and and Mother Nature had to figure out a way to make the process work so the parents would stay around and raise the child for 12 years because the child had to be about 12 years old to survive. 
Mother Nature had worked it out where a bear could raise her cub for two years. But it's going to take 12 years for a human. So she had to give us some different hormones to make us think that we were so much in love that the love would last. So when the chemical wore off in six months, we would still have the skills to love each other and take care of each other long enough for the child to mature. Is this kind of making sense? Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, it's like long enough to like keep the species going. And then after that, you kind of have this, you know, otherwise innate draw. Yeah. And we figured that tens of thousands of people die uh, worldwide because of accident, illness, um, war, suicides, all kinds of reasons. So you've got to keep up with that number. Of course, we've far exceeded, I think, any expectations that the old lady had in creating millions of, of people. Uh, but still, the love, the love process, uh, you know, is a natural thing. And so you can't get rid of it no matter how many people you, you keep alive on the planet. See, when you, when you fall in love and the chemicals take over your mind, they create illusions of skills for being in love. One of the things that most of us yearn for from an early age is somebody to appreciate me. I want somebody to appreciate me for who I am, both my good and my bad points. And we yearn for that. Our parents don't appreciate us like we want to. Our friends, our relatives don't appreciate us. And then one day we fall in love and we meet this person who appreciates me for who I am, both good and bad. It's not real. It's a figment of my imagination called by a chemical released in my bloodstream. And these chemicals, these dopamine, serotonin, whatever, are released into the bloodstream in large quantities. She wanted to make sure that we all got the message. And so when you're in love for six months, you feel like you are appreciated. You feel like the other person is so interested in you that they listen to every word. And they understand every word. They listen and they hear you. That's hearing, which is understanding. Um, you can talk about any subject without embarrassment because you have these, these uh, chemicals that are driving you. Uh, you can start talking about a subject and talk all the way through it. You can finish it or you can compromise, but you talk all the way through it, which is something people have difficulty doing. Um, of course, sex was pumped up so that people would not go to work. And, you know, they get so engrossed in having sex, they just stay in bed for days and not go to work and not go to sleep and not eat. But, you know, they were making Mother Nature happy, I guess. And so 
everything that makes the person feel like they are in love is being created by this, these chemicals. Um, oxytocin, oxytocin is one of my favorites. It's considered to be the love drug of choice. Um, oxytocin's purpose is to lie to the couple. When oxytocin is in high form, uh, the couple believes, well, our love is different from everybody else's. We're never going to have problems that other people have. We're never going to have to worry about getting a divorce. Our love is special. Well, 50% of marriages end in divorce within five years. And oxytocin told all of those people the same lie. It worked to keep them together for at least six months. One of the feelings that we have when we are under the influence of the chemicals is, I don't need to hear from you in words. I know what you're feeling. I know what you're thinking. It's the magical side of being in love. It's communication without words. And after six months, when this wears off, it is the reason for probably 25% of marriages getting a divorce within the first six months because the people think, well, the magic is gone. Why stay married? And so they get a divorce. So when I realized that the eight causes were the eight illusions, what I did was flip it over, I don't know how I did this, but I flipped it over and began to teach the eight illusions as skills. So I could teach a couple how to appreciate each other. I could teach a couple how to listen, how to hear, how to risk talking about issues that upset them normally. I could teach them how to have a better sex life once the chemicals have worn off. I could teach them how to have a deeper, richer love intimacy. People think that intimacy is sexual intimacy. No, sexual intimacy is just a small part of intimacy. And, and so then I, I found a couple that were on the point of divorce and I used the eight skills with them for 12 weeks and they became amazingly happy in their marriage, happier than they'd ever been before. And it lasted. So I knew that I'd found something that was much quicker than anything else I'd ever found. And, and so I began to advertise it. I thought, People would come to me in droves. No, it didn't happen. One of the frustrating things to me about people is, well, when I started working with married couples, I thought that I would have more, more clients than I could handle because everybody has a relationship. Uh, they are in love, but they don't have the love they want. Or it's not all they want. They don't know how to communicate exactly. They get shy about certain things. And um, 
cause all kinds of problems, and and you would think they'd want somebody to help them work out their problem, right? No. What they say is, well, everybody has problems, and mine couldn't be any worse than anybody else's. So, uh, I don't need any help. Our marriage is just fine. Uh, it doesn't matter that she doesn't talk to me for a week. Uh, I can, I can get over that. Uh, it doesn't matter if he pushes me around, hits me occasionally. He still loves me. Um, and just because he has an affair now and then, well, you know, I we, we get past that. That's that's understandable. That's that's the way men are. And people have all kinds of rationalizations for why their marriage is not as happy as they want it to be. But they're not going to go to a stranger and pay him good money to help make marriage better. So here I had a wonderful eight-step method for making a marriage great, and I couldn't get anybody to take me up on it. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like one of those where, you know, the, the pesky thing about free will, right? You're free to make your own mistakes. You can go to whoever you want. Doesn't mean they're the best person for it, but it seems wild to think about, you know, you've developed a system where you're like, look, this is faster. It's better. And I can prove it. And in today's world where we want everything faster, better, and proven, like you're not having people just flood to you. I mean, if you don't know that something exists, you, you don't take advantage of it. I mean, look at all the little gizmos and things that uh, the kids readily pick up. It took me a long time to find out about uh, Snapchat. Um, I mean, that's just one of the little things that kids have picked up. And, and, and to me, I don't keep up with all that technological stuff. So if you don't know about it, uh, I remember many, many years ago, I was looking for something special for my parents that were older. And um, a 14-year-old kid that was with me, I had him through the Big Brothers Association. And we went to an electronic store and looked around. And he said, well, um, Mr. Stokes, why don't you get a VCR for your parents? And I said, a what? A VCR. They can play movies on it. Uh, they can record their soap operas from TV and watch them later. There's all kinds of things you can do with a VCR. Well, I had no clue what he was talking about. But he talked long enough, and the salesperson talked long enough, so I bought the thing, uh, thinking my parents would never know how to operate it, but I got it and rented a few tapes that I thought they would like and gave it to them for Christmas. And they opened it up, and my dad said, well, what is this? <laughs> VCR. He said, okay, well, I'll, I'll read up on it and see. So he read the book, the little manual book, and by the end of the day, he was recording movies and soap operas off TV. I just, he got that kind of a mind, and it was the most wonderful gift for them. 
um, for years. They would record their soap operas and listen to them later. If they were going to be out somewhere, they you know do it a week in advance. Or things I can't do. Um, simply because that was something I learned about that I didn't know about before. If, if I can get people to learn about these these eight skills, it will re revolutionize their, their lives. Um, I've tried to get parents to, to let me teach it to their children so that the children can become more popular, have more friends, and get into leadership roles more quickly. And uh, the two things that I base that on is uh, teach, teach the child how to listen and teach them how to hear. Now, can you imagine a 10-year-old child talking to a 10-year-old child who understands exactly what he's talking about? Or a 10-year-old child is listening to a 15-year-old, knows exactly what he talks about. 15-year-olds will lose their minds around their parents because they want the parent to understand what they have discovered in puberty. And the parent just thinks, well, you're just being a dumb kid. You know, I'm going to ground you or something. Never hears, never understands. Well, you get a 10-year-old kid who can hear and understand another person. Folks are going to want this child to be in a leadership position. And, and what I say to, to folks is, you know, if you had learned these eight skills growing up, you wouldn't need a marriage counselor. But we don't learn them growing up. For instance, um, do you remember when you were a little boy, your mother pulled you aside and said, now I'm going to teach you how to listen. No, I do not. You remember your dad pulling you aside and said, now I'm going to teach you how to hear. I definitely don't remember that one. <laughs> of course not. Um, they didn't teach it because they didn't know how. And the process of listening, when I do it with a, with a client, uh, takes about three days. It's tedious. Nobody likes it. If, if you had known how to listen, if, if your parents had known how to listen when you were growing up, at the end of the meal, you would say, uh, Mother, may I go out? May I be excused, please, and go out and play? And she would say, Okay, you're saying that you want to be excused so you can go out and play. Yes, mother, that's what I said. I would like to be excused so I can go out and play. Okay, well, you're excused and you can go out and play. That's listening communication. The pilot's ready to take off. He calls the tower. The tower tells him which runway to get on. He repeats the runway. The tower repeats the run runway number. Want to make sure he gets the right number. So it's this two or three way conversation called listening. Nobody learned that before. Listening for us is when I'm in a conversation with you and I stop talking and start thinking about what I'm going to say next when it's my turn. I don't listen to a thing you're saying. 
still don't listen. God, it's just so important marriage, right? It's important business. You want to be sure you listen to your boss. You want to listen to the instructions given for a new task. If you're married, you want to be sure you're listening to what the other person's saying. Um, if you're a parent, you want to listen to what your child is saying. Um, there's a, a movie, I wish I could name, think of the name of it now, but um, there's a scene in there where the boy wants his mother to listen to what he's saying, and she's busy making up the bed and folding up the clothes and, you know, kind of giving him half an ear or whatever. And so he says something, and she stops what she's doing and says, okay, I'm all ears. That's listening. We don't do that much. We're so busy multitasking that we're listening with half an ear. Um, I've had a lot of men say, well, you know, I listen. I hear what I want to hear. It's called selective hearing or selective listening. So you know, I've, I've broken this, this thing down now from, from eight into separate courses that I teach. You know, I, can, I can do it through counseling or I can do it through courses. And um, if I do it through courses, I can do it anywhere in the world. If I do it through counseling, I can only do it in Georgia because I have a license in Georgia. So I teach, I teach a couple how to appreciate one another, uh, how to love each other, how to listen, how to hear, how to risk talking about various issues. And, and I've listed those in my web, website. Have you seen my website yet? I have not, but it's a good time to, to tell people where to find it. Okay, it's counselingservicesatlanta.com. And it says courses in 100. I list all the courses by name. Uh, the amount of time it takes and the amount it costs. Because, you know, not everybody needs all of the skills all at once. If a couple can learn to appreciate each other, that's something. I mean, the number one cause of divorce in, in America is the lack of appreciation. We just take each other for granted. And then if you can learn the listening and the hearing, you might not need any, any of it unless you just want to deepen your love. I mean, those are, those are the big three to appreciate, to listen, and to hear. Of course, that is good. And if, you're, if after the six months, both of you are afraid to initiate sex, then yeah, the sexual thing can be good. Get you back on track. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of this seems like, you know, things we should know or we'd want people to do for us that we are not willing to do for each other. You know, like when you're a kid and you want your parents to listen to your problems, like you really want them to listen. And when you're the adult in the situation, you've been the child with the problems. Like you went through puberty, you know what high school is like you know it was rough and you wanted somebody to listen to you and now that you're the adult it seems like well i've been there it's not a big deal don't worry about it 
not thinking about like, well, it's a huge deal to the person going through it. Yeah, I, I remember my puberty very well. Most people didn't have an experience like mine, but um, it was like the whole world opened up. And I could understand things I'd never understood before. And I, I like to keep a journal anyhow, but I, I started writing down these ideas as they came to me. And so I carried a notebook around with me all the time. And in class, instead of taking notes on whatever the course was, I was I was writing what was happening to me, what, what the world looked like, what it felt like. Um, and talking to a lot of teenagers, they never went through that. It was just um, a fast-moving movie or something for them. They didn't, they didn't analyze. I guess I have more of an analytical mind, and I was you know, more turned on to what I was learning than anything else. But it's, it, it's maddening to be a, a child or a teenager and not have anybody listen to you. Yeah, I know that. That leads a lot of people, you know, like you said, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that you need. And one of those is appreciation and listening and hearing. Like if I'm the teenager and I don't feel like I'm being appreciated because I'm the teenager, you know, and I can't get any sympathy at home and I don't get any sympathy from my, my colleagues, I guess, who are all in high school with me and no one wants to listen to my issues and no one wants to, you know, let me know that I'm being heard. Like, you're kind of having the same breakdown that you would if you were, you know, in a monogamous marriage and your partner is not appreciating you or listening to you or hearing you. Yeah. You're like, I'm fed up with this. I want something new. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, well, unfortunately this is just part of your life and you don't get to elect for something new. <laughs> yeah. I had, um, I had a guy listen to me a few years ago. Uh, you know, I've been counseling a lot and, I had counselors listen to me, and they do. And professional counselors, when when I listen to you, I'm listening. I'm not thinking about what I'm going to say next, which is in society, you know, we're listening. We're not listening. We're thinking about what we're going to say. Professional counselors are listening and thinking about their training and courses they've had and other people with similar problems and you know, I meet somebody at a cocktail party or something and, and she'll say, well, what do you do for a living? I say, I'm a psychotherapist. I, well, this happened not too long ago, before COVID, I, I was at a party and I watched this guy. He, uh, he came to the little bar and he got a full drink right up to the top. And then he came over to me and struck up a conversation. You know how you do at a party. And, and um, he said, well, Wayne, what do you do for a living? And I said, I'm a psychotherapist. He said, um, pardon me, I've got to go freshen up my drink. And he disappeared into the crowd. Well, people think that when I listen to them in a party, I'm psychoanalyzing them. No way. It's too hard work to listen to somebody and to bring in from every direction all that you know about the subject that is being talked about. I never do that in the cocktail party. Now, I, ha I have been cruel to some people, and they've said, well, 
you know, you're probably going to psychoanalyze me. And I said, well, no, I've already done that. That took five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> well, that took eight minutes. And you're a lost cause or something, you know, just for, for fun. Um, yeah, I mean, it's one of those where you're like, look, this is my day job. I don't do my day job at social events for, for kicks and giggles. Yeah, it's too hard to work. So, I mean, obviously there's a lot of, there's a lot of problems that contribute to relationships kind of falling apart. And I know we talked a little bit about that. We said, you know, people not appreciating people or kind of treating issues like, oh, this is normal right? Like, I don't, I don't have to go to, to therapy to realize, you know, that there's something wrong here because whatever we're going through is completely normal and I don't have to worry about it. Are there things that you see that contribute probably like the biggest contributors to people, you know, falling out of love or wanting a divorce? Yeah. Well, it's something you can't understand, but you get a couple where they, they fight over one subject. And then they think they've resolved it. And it comes back and they fight about it some more. And it goes away and then it comes back. Their fighting is, can be vicious. They don't know what it is. Uh, they don't know why it keeps coming back, but they can say some awful nasty things to each other, things you can't take back. Um, and when they realize that this is something that's not going away, then the only way to get rid of it is to get a divorce. Now, that's tragic because those things are coming out of the unconscious mind. Now, I don't know what you know about Sigmund Freud, but he, he gave us the concept of the unconscious mind. And my understanding is that that every memory we ever have is stored in the unconscious mind. Every memory from childhood. So um, among the billions, there are the, the memory of the first time I put my lips on my mother's nipple or the first time I had a bottle or the first time I dropped my pacifier or... Um, Every little memory, all of our lives uh, are stored in the, in the unconscious mind, and most of them don't mean anything. The only ones that we remember are what we call the charged memory. Uh, my first kiss. You're going to remember that. First time I had sex, you're going to remember that. Uh, first time some kid hit me in the nose, I remember that. Happy things, sad things, tragic things. We remember because they have a chart on. And so present day events can trigger one of those old events, old memories in the unconscious mind. And when we bring that event forward, we also bring the emotion forward. And so now we are experiencing a, a current um, event with an old emotion. And we don't know how to control it because we don't know where the emotion came from. It's just out of touch for us. But when we, whenever what we say or do triggers the past, we're now in control. 
and we're upset and angry and hurt, and we start saying things we wish we didn't say. So trigger events from the unconscious mind, I think, is the number one reason that people get a divorce. A lot of little things that, and most of them come from our from our childhood, our past. One thing I hear a lot from both the man and the woman is no matter what I do, it's never good enough. And I, I remember one couple vividly, she accused him of that one day. She said, well, no matter what I do, it's never good enough. That's what he tells me. So I turned to him and I said, when's the last time you said that to her? And he said, I've never said that to her. So I turned back to her and I said, well, where did you hear this? Who told you this when you were growing up? Oh, my mother. She told me this all the time. I said, okay. So you are transferring from your mother to your husband. And as far as you're concerned, you are hearing your husband say, no matter what you do, it's never good enough. But he's never said it. So it's that kind of thing that pick up in marriage counseling. Person not aware of it, but they do it, and it upsets them, and they can't, they can't overcome it because they don't know where it comes from. We have so many. If you want to come back someday for another subject, we can talk about the one that I've I've worked up uh, since the eight skills, which is called. Let's, let's reshuffle the cards like they'll you and have a method of finding out all kinds of things that people got from their childhood that we have no other way of finding. Well, I have no other way of finding. I just kind of stumbled on this new method that I use. But the thing about going to, to a professional counselor is Let's say the subject is I'm unhappy in my marriage because uh, my husband is mean to me. Okay, we can work on that subject. But while we are working on that subject, you will talk about other things that, that I will recognize as issues and we can work those out at the same time. If you're talking to your mama about your husband being mad, being bad, bad, mean to you, she's not going to see those other issues. She's just going to tell you what she wants you to do. So when you come to counseling, you're getting you're getting far more than you think you're getting. It's just a, it just unlocks a world. It's the difference between going to high school and going to college. You know, you go to college and it's like the whole world is, is opened up and you see possibilities you never could see in high school. It, it expands your mind. And that's kind of like uh, counseling. It, it just opens up to you all kinds of information you need, but you, you've never heard about it, never learned about it. And if you're being... I mean, really honest about the people who come to counseling, including the ones that just, you know, are inpatient and don't stick with it. 
how successful do you think most couples are at staying together after they have one of these major fallouts? Well, it's according to what what's investing. Um, you probably know of uh, couples who stayed married for 60 years. Um, my, my parents were married for 62 years, I think. They both quite old when they died, but if if I have a, a dream to have a 50th wedding anniversary, then I will put up with a lot of crap in order to stay married. If I'm devout in my religion and I take a vow till death do us part, then I'm gonna I'm gonna see through a lot of miserable living because I took a vow. Now vow doesn't mean something to a lot of folks, but to some very devout uh, religious people, it means a lot. There are a lot of a lot of couples, I think, that, well, it's true, a lot of couples, by the time they finally get to the marriage ceremony, they've already fallen out of love, and they know it. But they can't not go through with it because Mama wanted this big wedding. And she's invited a hundred friends, and you've got all these gifts, and the invitations have been sent out. <laughs> Reminds me, I I was about to marry the wrong girl a long time ago, and um, she had gotten her wedding dress. They'd sent out the invitations. She started getting in some of the gifts, and I called her up and said, "I just." I can't go through this. And she said, well, hang on a minute. And she passed the phone to her father. Oh, Lord. <laughs> but, you know, at the end of our conversation, he said, well, son, I'm, I'm glad you told us now. It'd been a real disaster. You'd have gotten married feeling the way that you did. Invitations are just money. You know, we, we can eat that. Uh, we can send the gifts back. But thank you so much for calling. Well, I was—I probably lost three, three or four pounds sweating <laughs> just talking to the guy. <laughs> that a lot of couples stay married even though they're miserable. Fifty percent of them get divorced. I think that about forty-five percent of marriages stay married, but they're bored or lonely or miserable, and they don't. Think that way. I talked to my brother. He'd been married. His first wife was killed, and so he married another girl on rebound, and then he married another one. The way he's talked about marriage is, is no, we're, we're reasonably happy. Uh, I work, and she stays home and takes care of the house, and she does her hard work. And we're no happier than anybody else, no unhappier than anybody else. Well, I don't want to be the measure of my happiness that that I'm no worse off than anybody else. I want to be better off. So, yeah, a lot of people stay married and they're not happy, but you've got somebody to pay half the rent or share the house and have sex with occasionally, or they stay married. The more, I, the more I get the word around that you don't have to come to marriage counseling for a long, long time like you do in person-centered, 
you know, just put in a word about counseling in case people don't understand. The belief in person-centered is a person has to make a aha discovery about what happens in their lives for it to mean something. So intellectually, you can know something for a long time, but until it becomes that serendipity moment where you know it, then you haven't gotten it yet. So counseling takes so long because it takes years for people to get the self-discovery that, that they need. That was a great idea 50 years ago, but our world moves too fast. We don't have time to go to counseling. Well, in Florida today, of course, in the 40s, uh, you went to psychoanalytic counseling three times a week. And if you did that nowadays, you would be paying like uh, $300 three times a week. That's $900. Most people can't do that. Why insurance is so good for people or EAP, free counseling is so good for people at work. They can go for a longer period of time for less money. And person-centered is, is the easiest method because you don't have to know much about anything. Um, if I were taking insurance and somebody came to me with a weight problem, I could work with them. If they were schizophrenic, I could work with them. If they were narcoleptic, I could work. If they were uh, sex addicted or alcohol addicted or cocaine addicted or uh, if they beat their wives or Lord knows, what, whatever the problem, I could take them because all I have to do is listen and occasionally say, well, tell me more. I don't have to know anything. I mean, you do. You, you learn in school, you learn in uh, continuing education courses, but my first couple that I had 34 years ago, I didn't know anything about. Well, I had... I'd been a minister for five years, and I'd, I'd done some marriage counseling in you know, little towns I was in, but real professional counseling I'd never really done. And uh, it took me two years to do what I can do now in a month. It just takes a long time to learn enough in counseling to be able to be effective. And what I did with my first couple was I listened to them. I was, I'd come out of uh, training as a chaplain intern where I'd have to go in and sit and listen to a person for an hour, record the conversation, come back to my desk, write verbatim everything that she said, I said, she said, I said, and then turn on the recorder, listen to it, and mark and read the places that I missed. They were teaching me verbatim listening, and it worked. And I was at a place where uh, back then I could listen to everything, not take notes, and then write verbatim what they said. And whatever I didn't understand, I could, I could look up on the Internet or in books. So I started out learning a lot more than other counselors who just sit and listen. 
and that's been my operation 34 years is I I take a lot of notes and I study my notes from week to week and if I need to I do research on certain points so I've learned a tremendous amount about relationships over 34 years that somebody that does person-centered counseling would never learn. And I think it's one of the reasons that I've been able to, to be as successful at helping folks in fast amount of time because I I can recognize the issues faster maybe. No, that makes sense. And I think you've given people a lot to, you know, listen to and think about, take back and apply to their relationships, you know, any relationship you have, because you gave us something that said, like, don't just have this responsive listening habit, right? Like, don't listen to somebody just so that you can say the next sentence. Go home and listen to whoever you talk to regularly and really just focus on what they're saying and, you know, potentially even just repeat what they said so that they know that you heard them. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of things in here that I think are very important. And I appreciate that you came on the show to to tell people all this because I don't think people are paying enough attention to their relationships, both, you know, romantic and interpersonal, and it's hurting them. Well, I thought I might give your audience something to take away. Absolutely. What I do in the first session with a couple is if they're, you know, if they're still talking to each other, I ask them that they will stand up and hug each other. And then I'll have a woman say, uh, I love you because you're a good provider, or whatever. And then he says to her, I love you because you take such good care of the kids. And they go back and forth with this two or three times in the beginning. And so then after that, every night before they go to bed, they hug each other and say, I love you because, and they give a reason. That's appreciation. And if they do this every day, they feel appreciated and their marriage is much stronger. Yeah, I think that's Um, really good advice. Yeah, thank you. Um, Well, the website, of course, is Again, counseling services atlanta.com. Be sure to, to read in the website about the courses that I teach, which are called counseling condensed courses, like the one on let's reshuffle the cards life has dealt you. I teach in five one hour classes what it would take you five years to learn about the subject in counseling. Uh, that's kind of the, the new cutting edge of, of where I'm going with my, with my practice. Alrighty. Well, I think this has been great. Um, I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you again. Yeah, Colton. I appreciate you having me talk about what I love. Hey. Had to get just one more of those right in the end of the episode for all of you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Just Dumb Enough podcast. Please take a brief moment to rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, or Audible. It helps the show grow in ways you can't imagine. And if you haven't already, please tell someone you know to listen to this show. Pretty, pretty please from me.
I'm always looking for new topics, guest ideas, and questions from the audience. To reach out to me, email dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com or send a message to any of the show pages on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or wherever else. The update for the August official top countries so far has number one, United States, with top states California and Oregon bumping Illinois down to third. Second, the United Kingdom by a wide margin. Number three, Australia, still led by Victoria. Number four, Brazil. And number five, Canada, also still led by Alberta. That's all for now. I will see you all Thursday for the next podcasting-based episode. Woo! Bye bye <laughs>